You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. How many years would you have to have left on your prison sentence to consider an escape attempt? How many years ahead of you would you have destined to stay in prison for you to have to say, I'm going to try to escape? Now, if you only had a few days left, surely you wouldn't risk it all by trying to escape. But if you had years and years, maybe you would consider trying to escape. Now, I love that right now in the room we have people that are like, I can't even imagine this scenario. And also people are like, I've had to make this decision. (laughs) Probably if you had just a couple of days left, you'd just wait, right? Because you're about to get out. You would think that would be the case, but there was this one guy named Andrew in Kentucky who had one day left on his sentence, and he was in work release nonetheless. All he had to do was return back to the jail for one more night after work, and the next day he would be free. But he couldn't bring himself to go back to the jail that night, so after work he stole a car and fled to the next county. He was quickly found, arrested again, and faced new charges. He just couldn't handle another night, so he ended up with several more nights. That question that I asked you, it's asking you, what would you be willing to endure so that you could be free? Or what risks would you take so that you could be free? In Galatians 5, Paul writes to these people saying, Remain steadfast or stand firm in the liberty that you already have. The liberty that's already been given to you. He's saying don't walk back into the bondage of slavery because you've already been set free. The problem with the folks in Galatia is that they had heard a lie. That their trust in Jesus was good, but it wasn't good enough. That their hope in Christ as their Savior was good, but it wouldn't get them to heaven. And that if they wanted to really experience salvation, they needed to add these Old Testament laws, such as circumcision and ceremonies. So in chapter 5, Paul says, stand firm in your liberty. Don't allow yourself to be dragged back in to bondage. Stand your ground and say, I am going to remain free. He says to them, after all, all, that's the reason that Jesus set us free. So that we could be free. He says, wherewith the liberty, wherewith Christ has set you free. He's basically saying pretty plainly, God set you free so that you could be free. Now, I know that sounds simplistic, but it's the truth. Christ set us free so we would be free. And he's saying to the Galatians, Christ set you free so you can be free. So stay free. Don't go back into bondage. Don't go back into slavery. And that's the premise upon which this command is built. Stand firm, therefore, in your liberty. And throughout this whole letter, we've gotten the sense that Paul is concerned that they are living with this fear that they're not good enough. They're living with this insecurity that they haven't done enough. They're worried that they haven't quite made it yet. And so Paul is telling them, stand firm in the liberty. Christ has set you free. 
enjoy that freedom. Freedom from doubt, freedom from insecurity, freedom from anxiety, freedom from worry. And that's some freedom that I think that we would all love to have, right? Freedom from worry, freedom from anxiety. That's what Paul wanted for the Galatians. He wanted them to be free indeed. Truly free. And Paul was concerned that these people who had told the Galatians these things, that they had robbed the Galatians of that freedom, of that freedom from worry and that freedom from doubt. So he uses the word troubled twice in this passage, once in verse 10 and again in verse 12. And the idea here is that they've unsettled you. They've unsettled you. You were at peace. You were free from worry and doubt, but they have unsettled you. Have you ever had something that you're carrying and everything's fine, but then something trips you up and everything that you're carrying is unsettled? It's thrown. The Galatians had had this security and this freedom, but these false teachers had unsettled them. They were free, but they had been troubled and unsettled in their freedom. And what's sad is that it was over nothing. It was useless. They had been free. Imagine with me that you're on vacation, and for your vacation, you, you and your family, you go to a beach somewhere, and you've got your, sand, your feet in the sand, and you're listening to the, the waves roll in, the weather's beautiful, your family's having a great time, and you made the mistake of bringing your cell phone out there onto the beach with you. And the phone rings, and you look, and it's one of your colleagues from work. And you told them that you were going on vacation and to only call you in, in case of an emergency. So when you see their name on the caller ID, you think, oh, there must be something horrible that's happened. There's some catastrophe at work. And so you answer the phone, but there's nobody there. You call the colleague immediately right back. You get their voicemail. You send them a text message. Is everything okay? What's wrong? And an hour passes before they get back to you. And when they call you back in an hour, they say, I forgot that you were on vacation. I didn't really need anything. As soon as I picked up the phone, I remembered you were on vacation, so I hung up. And in the hour... Since you left that message and they called you back, you thought up seven different catastrophes that could have happened at work, right? You've thought up four different emergencies that are going to require you to leave your family on the beach, and that entire hour at the oceanfront has been lost to worry and anxiety. You haven't been on vacation in your mind. You've been back at work. You've been back at the factory. And more frustrating than all of that is the fact that you find out at the end of it that it was all over nothing. Paul is writing to the Galatians because their security and their freedom had been unsettled over nothing. These false teachers were telling them that they needed something more than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they needed nothing more. They've gotten them all worked up over nothing. Friend, it may be that this morning you have doubts and worries, and there's no reason for you to. Because God's word has given us reason to have hope, steadfast hope, liberty, freedom from anxiety and worry. And for that reason, Paul tells them in verse 1, stand fast in that liberty. Don't allow that freedom to be taken from you. Verse 7, he says to them, you were running well. Who has hindered you? Paul wants to know, who was it that called you on the beach and ruined your day? Who is it that has unsettled your freedom in Christ? Who is it that has caused this to happen? I want to know. Paul takes issue with these people 
because the Galatians were people that he loved and he labored over and he taught them the message of the gospel and taught them that they could be free from their sin and taught them they could be free from their worries and their doubts. And now that's all come crashing back in because of these false teachers. He says, who did it? want to know. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you? And he says, these ideas are not from the one who called you into his grace. He says, you're not thinking these things because God has sent his messenger. You've heard from someone else. The source has not been from the Lord. It's been from someone else. He says, Jesus has gone to great lengths to provide you freedom from guilt. He's not going to then try to enslave you again in guilt. See, here's the thing. Guilt is a powerful motivator, isn't it? You know, you've guilted your kids into doing things before, haven't you? Right? You've guilted your friends into helping you move, haven't you? Right? Yeah. If you own a pickup truck, people try to guilt trip you into helping them move all the time. Guilt is a powerful motivator. And they were trying to make the Galatians feel guilty for not obeying all of these laws so they could get them to do what they wanted them to do. They're trying to control them. In verse 9, Paul says the people who have done this, they're like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. Now, this is a throwback reference to the Old Testament. Now, at the end of chapter 4, Paul tells a story about Abraham and Sarah, which is from the Old Testament law. And here, in Galatians chapter 5, he uses this, which is a throwback to the Old Testament law. And the reason he's doing this is because the people he's debating with, they... They portray themselves as experts in the old history of Israel and the Old Testament law. And so Paul is using these references to show like, hey, I know my stuff here too. And so when he uses this phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, he's referring back to a practice that the Israelites had a long time ago. Every year they would have a feast and they would have that feast with unleavened bread. It was bread without any yeast or anything that would make it rise. It was flat. It was a crisper bread. Not that there was anything wrong with yeast or leaven, but this was a time that they were having this special festival, eating unleavened bread to remember how God had rescued them and that's all they had to eat. So to make sure that no leaven got in the bread, before they made the bread, they would sweep out the entire house. Clean the house from stem to stern, top to bottom, to make sure there was no leaven in the entire house. And the phrase that they would say is, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If there's just a little bit of this leaven, it'll affect the entire loaf of bread. And you know this to be true, right? You put the wrong ingredient into something, it doesn't affect just one piece of the pie, it affects the whole pie. And Paul is saying this little bit of leaven, this little bit of untruth, this little lie has affected your heart and mind. You've allowed this to encroach upon you. And this little bit of leaven has leavened the whole lump. I think that we all know that a little lie can make a big difference, right? If you've been told a little lie that makes a big difference, you know that to be true. And Paul is saying to them, this little untruth, this little lie, you're allowing it to do this damage. Reject it outright. Reject this untruth. Stand firm in the message of the gospel. Stand firm in the truth that you are forgiven of your sins. Reject this lie. Because if you accept this lie, it will affect everything. A little leaven will leaven the whole bunch. Now Paul has some pretty serious opinions of these people that have told this to the Galatians. 
So much so that he says something in verse 12, which is really strong. He says, I wish that they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, let's remember that the context of this situation, Paul is talking to them about whether circumcision or uncircumcision availeth anything. And what he said here on this passage is, I wish these people that were so incredibly dedicated to these Old Testament laws and ceremonies, I wish they would really get serious about it and go all the way. The ESV and New American Standard Bible translate this, I wish that they would emasculate themselves or become eunuchs. He's saying, don't just stop at the beginning. Go ahead and take care of all of it. Why was he saying these things? Because he knew that if they accepted this lie, the truth of the gospel would be lost. He says in verse 2, if you accept this message of circumcision, Christ is no good to you. It is not helpful. It is no advantage to you. Because if you trust in something other than Christ, you're not trusting in Christ. If you don't believe wholeheartedly in Jesus, if you're believing in something else, you're not believing in Jesus. So he says, circumcision, uncircumcision, that doesn't avail anything. He says what matters is faith and trust in Christ. Remember we said throughout this letter, the gospel plus anything is not the gospel. What he's telling them is, if you have the gospel plus something else, that's not the gospel. If you've got to trust Jesus and do X, Y, Z, that's not trusting Jesus. So then in verse 4 he says, if you're justified by the law, you're not free in Christ. Christ is no effect for you. And then he says, and you are fallen from grace. Now, One of the theological differences that sets free will Baptists apart from others is that we believe that man has been given a free will and that God has made free grace available. In other words, any that would come to know the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior can be forgiven of their sins. There's not a select group that this is offered to, but God has offered it to all mankind. We also believe that God has, been, God has given man freedom of the will. That freedom to accept or reject the message of the cross is one that we continue to operate as believers, we continue to make choices that are good and bad. And if we reject Christ, we reject His message, we're not in grace. We're not walking with Him. There are some that believe in irresistible grace, meaning that if someone hears the message of the gospel and God is working in their heart, they can't reject it. Paul is saying here, if you are trying to trust in works to save you, if you're trying to trust in the law, you're not... In grace, you're rejecting Him. Paul is passionate that they would stay free and not become in bondage. Well, why is he so passionate about this? Because he's saying, you can't straddle the fence here. You can't do both and. You can't say, well, I'm trusting in Jesus and I'm trusting in the law. You can't do both. You're either in one or you're in the other. You either trust Christ or you don't. You can't have both. John Stott wrote a book on Galatians. And he wrote that in our day and age, more than ever, people want to hold contradicting ideas simultaneously. In other words, they want things that are opposed to both be true. He wrote that in 1968. I wonder what he would say about our culture today. 
In our culture today, we want your truth to be able to coexist with my truth and his truth and her truth and whatever you believe is true for you is true for you and whatever I believe is true for me is true for me. What Paul's making clear here is the truth and a lie cannot coexist. You must choose one or the other. They cannot coexist. You cannot straddle the fence. You cannot stand on the truth and a lie. You must choose one. Paul was worried these false teachers were simply trying to encroach further and further on their liberty and drag them further and further from the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul says, let's not even start down that road. Instead, instead, let's do something different. Instead of trusting in works, instead of trusting in our efforts, let's trust in Christ's grace and let's live in that grace. And the positive commands he gives in this passage are verses 5 and 6. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. In verse 6 he says, faith which worketh by love. Verse 13 he says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Verse 14 he says, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He's saying, let me show you what's down the road here. If you you trust in your own efforts and you trust in ceremonies and keeping the rules, what's down the road is misery and anxiety and bondage in slavery. But if you trust in grace and you live in the freedom that God's grace provides, it leads to love and to serving others. That's the result. That's what's down the path. Paul believed that the path of religion and the path of sin both led to slavery and misery. But the path of faith leads to love and hope and grace and truth. Paul's trying to show them, don't try to straddle the fence. They're going in opposite directions. They're heading in opposite directions. And if you try to stand on both, you're going to get in trouble. path of religion, the path of the law, the path of ceremony leads to further slavery and misery. You've got to keep more and more laws. You've got to do more and more to feel good enough. But the path of freedom and grace in Christ Jesus leads to love and serving others. You see, living your life in debt to the law is not freedom. And living your life in defiance to the law is not freedom either. Some people say, man, I'm not like those religious people. They're they're bound to all the rules and laws. I'm going to live free and do whatever I want. You know what that leads to? It leads to bondage as well. Leads to getting yourself in trouble. Leaves you without any options. So it's not a debt to the law. It's not defiance to the law. It's a path of faith. Trusting Christ path of his grace and when we experience his grace when we experience freedom in him it leads us to a life of love and service there's misery in serving the law and there's hopelessness in a life of sin but there's love and grace and truth on the path of faith William Wilberforce is a name that we're not very familiar with today but he had a profound influence upon the world. 
William Wilberforce was elected to English Parliament when he was only 24 years old. And the world in which he grew up was very different from the one that we live in today. The world that he grew up in, slavery was common. And not only was it common, it was believed to be necessary. Even people who didn't like slavery felt that it was just a necessary evil. And so people had slaves. They felt like if you were going to build a nation, build a business, you had to have slaves. So there was this, this acceptance of the slave trade. And then there was also this acceptance in London of the sex trade. When we think back on English history, a lot of times people think of English people being the ones who were enlightened. But in London, there were brothels all over the place. The average age of a prostitute when Wilberforce came to power in the early 1800s was 16 years old. And there were brothels that advertised the services of exclusively girls who were 14 years old and younger. Wilberforce led a charge to shut those down and to end the slave trade. Because of his influence, slavery is not thought of as common or ordinary or necessary. It's thought of as evil. People that we think of as heroes in the end of slavery, like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, they both said that William Wilberforce was a great influence on their lives. So what made William Wilberforce this powerful influence on the world? Well, when Wilberforce was a child, his father died. His mother had four young children, so he was sent to live with his rich uncle. His rich uncle was one of the first Methodists, this new group of people who were zealous about Jesus and following him in every aspect of their lives. His uncle was friends with people like George Whitfield, who would start the, uh, uh, the Great Awakening, the revival in America. And John Newton, the ex-slave ship captain who became a pastor and wrote the song Amazing Grace. When William, William Wilberforce's mother found out that he was hanging out with all these religious zealots, she brought him back home from his uncle's house. She didn't want him growing up around all of that. So from the time he was around 11 years old until his 20s, he didn't go to church anymore. After he was elected into Parliament, he went back to church. And when he went back to church, he realized that he had been wasting his life in Parliament and in college and in school doing whatever he wanted when there were all these things that needed to be done in the world. And he felt incredibly guilty. He began to sell everything that he owned. He began to only take public transportation so that he could save money and give it to the poor. He felt incredibly guilty about every aspect of his life. But then he met with John Newton, that old friend of his uncle, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. He met with him because he felt like he needed to quit his job in Parliament, go into the ministry, and go serve in some far-flung place to, to make a difference, to feel worthy and earn his relationship with God. But when John Newton spoke with him, and when he attended John Newton's church and heard him preach, he heard about that amazing grace that John Newton loved so much. And he realized that there was nothing he could do to earn his relationship with God because it was given to him. And because of the love and grace that poured into his life, he was no longer racked by guilt, but he continued to be generous with his life and his influence. And he made it his goal to change what he called the manners in London to end the sex trade. 
and to end the slave trade. And he gave his life to serve others and love others. How did that happen? It wasn't because of guilt. It was because of grace. It's because of grace. And this morning I hope that like William Wilberforce, you not only come back to church, but you'll come to God's grace. Because that's what changes lives. Not guilt, but grace. Freedom from shame. Freedom from sin. Freedom from religion. Freedom from bondage. Freedom from guilt, anxiety, worry. Freedom in God's grace. That's what he offers us today in the simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.